0: This is the Dr. Mama podcast with your host, Dr. Alice Coughlin.
1: Hello, welcome back to the Dr. Mama podcast. Welcome
2: one and all.
1: This is episode 15 for April 1st, 2021.
0: April Fool's Day! Yay! What do you say, yay? Uh, Like, I'm actually kind of excited that there might actually be some good like April Fool's pranks in the media this year? Because everyone got to April Fool's Day last year. We're like, "Eh, let's let's give it a miss this year.
1: (laughs) Yeah, last year I felt like it was too dark. This year, I mean, it is still quite dark. Obviously, there's still a horrible raging pandemic and a lot of lives lost. Um, But there's some hope going on through the vaccine. So maybe we can have a joke. Well, I think, sure. I think
0: so, because like, I remember like April last year, there was still like so much unknown about the virus. Yeah, like here so we have a fear. good handling about it.
1: Yeah, we can't actually treat it because it's not treatable, but we at least know more about the spread and all that jazz.
0: Which means jokes and April Fool's pranks.
1: Jokes.
0: I don't, there was this uh, amazing one back back long time ago before I was born in the UK. And they televised a, um, a news story saying they discovered a spaghetti tree and everybody fell for it. And it was like on BBC News.
1: <laughs> oh it was brilliant. Only in That's hilarious. <laughs> I can't remember any particularly good ones. Um, but if y'all have any good April Fool's, tra- uh, April Fool's Day pranks, um, you should send them to us because I could do with a laugh right now. <laughs> Sounds good.
0: Anyway, moving on from the uh, April Fool'sness, uh, we have a wonderful episode with uh, with you today, for you today.
1: Just for you, an interview with one of my very own attendings, Dr. Jessica Reeder. So she is a family medicine doctor practicing um, in Massachusetts. She did medical school at Tufts University.
0: Like all the coolest people.
1: Oh, well, yes, and by all the coolest people, he means me, so that's okay, <laughs> um, and did her residency at Northwestern in Chicago, and then a family medicine obstetrics fellowship at the University of Utah, and is now a full-spectrum family medicine attending, doing everything from she was recently boarded in obesity medicine and... And does prenatal care, well-child checks, full spectrum, outpatient, inpatient. Um,
0: In the ladies' chamber.
1: Yeah. Everything you can think of. She does C-sections. She does high-risk obstetrics, low-risk obstetrics.
0: Something makes me think you're really in awe of her.
1: Yeah. I really it's not in the cards for me to do right now just due to you know the having two toddlers thing but someday i would love to be able to do high-risk family medicine obstetrics that is a, a someday dream of mine i think
0: that would be very cool it would, would be, be very so cool, cool. <laughs>
1: um but yeah not something i have time to commit to at the moment unfortunately
0: but luckily you do have time to commit to listening to this episode of the doctor mama podcast
1: Jess welcome to the podcast thank you for having me so we want to start by giving you a chance in your own words to tell us your story of how you became a Dr. Mama okay Um,
2: (laughs) I will try to give you the somewhat abridged version um so I have always kind of knew that I wanted kids um never really thought much about it it was just kind of always there um and so, when my husband and I were starting to decide when that would happen, we had to take into consideration all of our training. So, he's also in medicine, he's in infectious diseases. Um, and so, there's definitely times in our training where we knew it wouldn't be a good idea. So, um, basically, once the timing was right where we wouldn't have a baby in his first year of fellowship, uh, we decided to start trying. Um,
1: And And, where was that
2: for you? Sorry. So that was my first year as an attending because I had, I had done my year of um, obstetrics fellowship, got major baby fever (laughs) (laughs) while doing a year of OB fellowship where I just delivered babies for a year. But then he started infectious diseases fellowship the year after that. And his first year is very, very like schedule heavy um, and really intense. So we definitely knew that wasn't a good time. So my first year as an attending, and when the timing would have been in his second year of fellowship, we started trying. Um, And the road wasn't totally as easy as I was hoping it would be, unfortunately. Um, We got pregnant um, after a couple of months, but unfortunately had a miscarriage. Um, That was in April of 2019, Um, and uh, did the whole DNC thing, and then tried again, and Got pregnant again about like six months after that, and had a chemical pregnancy or really early miscarriage. Did some acupuncture, all sorts of stuff, <laughs> and then got pregnant again a couple months later. Um, and finally that one stuck and then a pandemic hit. <laughs> oh my goodness. two thing. Yeah. So it's definitely been not what I pictured when we first started trying. Um, but you know, I had a really healthy pregnancy. Um, despite having most of that pregnancy during the pandemic, I was, I think, eight or nine weeks pregnant when um, COVID hit Massachusetts and we were like converting to telehealth and doing all this, all this stuff. And I had to kind of make the decision of how much in-person care I wanted to do. And at that time, like we had no idea how pregnancy could be affected by COVID. Um, So I, you know, definitely had to tell people sooner than I wanted to, that I was pregnant because of having had the miscarriages, I definitely wasn't planning on telling people. Um, But everyone we work with was super supportive and basically let me do telehealth exclusively from home for months, which was less than ideal in the long run. But <laughs> I think what I needed at the time. <laughs> and then we had a perfectly healthy, lovely little girl in October, and she turns five months tomorrow. Happy and been... almost
1: birthday. Almost yeah. birth month. Almost birth month, exactly. <laughs> almost five months. <laughs> almost five months.
2: Yeah. And I've been back at work for about two and a half months. So that's when I really felt like a
1: doctor mama
2: was once I was back to work.
1: (laughs) That, I mean, it's so important to share stories that don't go exactly as planned, because Mm -hmm. I think we all see from the outside, everything always seems to go smoothly. And nobody, I mean, I didn't know I was working with you during all that time, and I didn't know that you're struggling. So I think it's important because talking with other friends who may be struggling now or oh. whose journeys are not going as they always dreamed it's really important to show that like everything can be different and you know everything turns out for a reason it's, yeah it's gonna work out one way or another
2: it's so true and it's interesting because i think at least me and my personality i'm always a planner and i always was like okay we'll have to start trying when this timing works out etc cetera, etc etc cetera. But it was actually a conversation I had with one of your former classmates, um, who had had a loss, um, in the second trimester. And she was telling me her story about that when we were working together. And it kind of triggered me to, to just be like, I can't control everything. I don't know what's going to happen. I would hate to like, wait to try and then go through all of this. So she like really inspired me to start trying when we did. And I told her that she was like the first person I told Aww. that we were trying, um, And I'm really glad that I did try when we did, but I don't know. You never know. Like maybe if it was later, then that wouldn't have happened. There's no way that now we control any of that,
1: but yeah. But yeah, people talking about it absolutely makes a difference. Yeah. And I think that it make, it takes away, at least I hope it takes away some of the stigma of like miscarriage and losses. And like, these are so common and nothing that you do, makes it like you don't you don't have anyone to blame it's nothing that you do wrong it's just Mm -hmm. an unfortunate part of the cycle of life
2: exactly and I didn't really talk about it until after we announced our pregnancy with my daughter um like we hadn't even told our family I mean my sisters that and like my closest friends knew um but we haven't told our parents that we were even trying we hadn't told them about the miscarriages until afterwards yeah. Um, but now that I have talked about it, I feel like so much more passionate about talking about it for exactly that reason, because people don't realize how common it is. And now I, t- I talk with my parent patients about it too. Like it's definitely changed how I manage my patients early pregnancy losses, um, because I can empathize with them in a totally different way. And I think that they appreciate that.
0: So going on a personal level, I do, I do want to touch on these cause these were your first, your first goes at having a kid. Um, how did you? How did you come to terms with having these miscarriages? How did you emotionally deal with it as a yeah. as a like a small unit family?
1: Especially mm-hmm. as a doctor practicing so much obstetrics, <clears throat> surrounded by babies all the time, how do you feel like it affected your practice of medicine? How were you emotionally able to, you know, cope?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. I think. Um, Interestingly, when we got pregnant the first time, my brain was sort of in like a defense mode already. Like I remember early in that pregnancy saying, well, let's not get our hopes up. It's really early. Anything can happen because I knew statistically speaking, there's like a 25 to 30% chance that any pregnancy ends in miscarriage. But I never really thought that it would happen to me, but I was saying it a lot. And so going to that first appointment, having that first ultrasound and seeing that there was no heartbeat. Like I knew in my mind, I was like, okay, like that happened. I knew that that could happen. And I was, I think, trying not to be sad. But then my OB, I remember, it was like the first time I'd met her too. Um, She was like, it's okay to be sad, even though that you know, you know, that these things happen, there's nothing that you did. Like, it's okay to be sad and it's okay to grieve and you should. Um, and I just, I still remember that and, and remember thinking like, okay, like I, it's, I don't have to be special. I don't have to be extra stoic because just because I knew that this was a possibility. Um, and so I, you know, I think we had our normal grieving process. I think it was, um, I think it's more challenging for, you know, the woman than it is for my husband and. You know, after a while, we we realized that he was grieving, too, and we hadn't really kind of talked about how he was grieving. Um, but we came to the realization that we were both kind of at the same page and and struggling with it was kind of like right before. No, it wasn't. the the due date would have been right before the holidays. And so I think we both we realized we both kind of like had this picture in our mind of like having a new baby in the family and having a baby for the holidays and things like that. Also simultaneously, my sister was pregnant for the first time too. And so I kind of had this like image of having our pregnancies be two weeks apart and having these babies born together. And so it was really hard to like grieve that loss.
3: Um,
2: Interestingly though, I didn't actually find that it changed how I thought about my work. Um, I didn't find it harder to deal with pregnancies at work. I didn't find it harder to deal with pregnancy loss And I remember at some point thinking, oh, I'm still very pro-choice. That's cool. Like (laughs) I was a little bit worried that I would maybe think differently about that. But if anything, it just kind of like doubled down on my feelings of a woman being able to choose how to plan their family. Um, And I remember having this moment of being surprised that that is where I got to (laughs) with that. Um, That's so cool. Yeah, it was interesting realization.
1: I remember having a moment while I was, we, it took us a while to get pregnant with our second mm-hmm. and I was working in a, um, it was, it was, what was it? it was like a reproductive health clinic at Tufts and we were doing a lot of first trimester terminations and mm-hmm. feeling this feeling like, I can't get a baby to grow inside of me. And all of these women have babies growing inside of them that they don't want. And Mm -hmm. how, and it wasn't a, like a, it was definitely not feeling like they shouldn't not have the baby growing inside them that they don't want. It was just a feeling like, how has the universe messed this up? Like they put these babies in the the other wombs. That wasn't fair. Um, But definitely, I think it's really important to be able to feel that, Grief and accept that it is okay to grieve, and and it's mm-hmm. okay to grieve when you don't have the pregnancy and the baby when and how you expected. It. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to to feel that sadness and then to move forward with your life in whatever way it takes you.
2: Yeah, definitely. Sure. I mean, the, there was like a second situation where you know the second time that it happened, I had an early like chemical pregnancy loss. And I was actually rounding on labor and delivery the week that I found out that like my HCD was dropping. And of course, like the day I found out that we get a call from ultrasound about a patient who's got an early pregnancy loss and they need someone to come down and talk to her. And I just couldn't do it. I sent, yeah. you know, somebody else to do it. Um, but luckily that person was one of my very, very close friends and knew what was going on. So yeah, yeah. it's not like it wasn't completely affecting
1: my work, but yeah.
0: <laughs> how how did you deal with that for the second time? It was obviously earlier on, right? Was but, the
1: grieving yeah. different yeah. for you the second
2: time? It was different in a way because I think I was. I mean, the, at first when we got pregnant, right? We got pregnant, and I had the positive pregnancy test, and you know, I'm a crazy person who kept taking pregnancy tests to see if the line was getting darker, which I don't recommend. <laughs> And it stopped getting darker and so that's when I called my OB and we did some we did some blood work and the first HCG was like really low and I just had this moment I said to my husband like I don't know what I'm gonna do if this doesn't work this time like I don't think I can handle that again mm-hmm. and I remember saying that but then getting the news that it was happening I didn't really feel as strongly about the first time there's something different about seeing an ultrasound yeah and not Um, like I still can see the first ultrasound and see a fetal pole without a heartbeat. Like also doesn't help that I knew exactly what I was looking at right when it (laughs) happened. (laughs) Like the ultrasound tech may have been relieved to just be like, oh yeah, there's no flicker. Cause I was like, oh, there's no flicker. (laughs) But so the second time, like not having that ultrasound actually was a lot easier, even though in the moment I would, I just remember thinking like, I don't know how I could do that again, but I ended up getting over that quicker. I started seeing a therapist. I started going to acupuncture. And I think I just the way that I cope with things is like acting. And so I just made action plans of like, I need to do something to make this happen. I have no idea if acupuncture helped. <laughs> no idea yeah. if going to therapy really helped. But I felt like I was doing something. And within two months, I was pregnant again.
0: <laughs> was um, what did you learn from your um, from your first miscarriage? uh that you put into action and your second miscarriage um that really helped you deal with that like you said you were certainly like very action orientated and did things um how Mm -hmm. how did you and your husband both deal with with that what did you
1: do you feel like there were any skills or conversations that you put into place the second time around um I don't
2: think so nothing specifically that we kind of took away from the first miscarriage because the situations right? I think we're were a bit different different. yeah Yeah. um but I think just mostly at that that point we'd been trying for over a year and still didn't have a healthy pregnancy so it's just like once you reach that year point (laughs) it's it's like a next level of frustration and sadness um but I yeah I think it was just more of like I cope by making action plans and so that's what i did and whether or not that helped because of the placebo effect of me doing these things who knows
0: (laughs) i mean placebo is a completely valid thing if it helps it helps right uh... (laughs)
2: absolutely (laughs) i totally believe in the power of placebo
0: scientific or not if it helps yeah
2: yeah exactly (laughs) and like going to acupuncture was great like i really liked it
0: I remember the first time I had because I, I used to be really scared of needles, um, and I used to be at a point when I had used to have like blood taken or something. I used to like faint in the corridor oh and like be ridiculous. And then he I remember going,
1: on me the first time <laughs> I, drew his blood. I did. You're right. Oh no. um,
0: but I remember the first time I had acupuncture, I was so terrified. And it doesn't feel anything like that. It just feels kind of tickly.
2: Yeah, it doesn't hurt at all. But it is
0: weirdly relaxing. I I don't know why.
2: (laughs) I think more than anything, I'm just like, here's an hour that I've carved out to lie down in this quiet room with relaxing music.
0: (laughs) I think think that's it. You're right. Yeah.
1: An hour where I have no other responsibility. Right.
2: I'm yeah. paying to take a nap like, <laughs> exactly. and there's probably some power in that. So whether or not the needles have anything to do I mean, with it, I don't know.
0: I, think, I feel like the needles make you not want to move in case you mess <laughs> it up. Yeah,
2: yeah
1: <laughs> Probably true. You're like, I'm going to be really still <laughs> for this hour. <laughs> I remember the one time I ever did acupuncture. It was um, my medical school has this thing that you do during third year where you're like, Given a voucher to go explore some alternate type Mm -hmm. of medical practice, so like some people were given one for like massage therapy or for tai chi or whatever. Mine was for acupuncture, and I went, and I I was how I was probably like I don't know about thirty weeks pregnant at the time. And so it was just a time to like go and lie down. And I remember the, it was at a school. So the acupuncture students were just so excited to get to do an exam on a pregnant woman that Mm -hmm. like six different acupuncture students came in and did like full exams on me. And were talking me through like, this is how we feel your pulse and your pulse is different because of your pregnancy. And they were just so excited. And I remember just that feeling of excitement being so contagious of like I'm in this room of people who are like celebrating my body my pregnancy in a way that I haven't because I'm an exhausted third-year medical student yeah and it was so wonderful and what an interesting
2: experience to be on the other side of that because you've been the med student going in as the six people into the room to examine some interesting (laughs) finding (laughs) now you're the (laughs) interesting
1: finding it was really really fun that's so cool so Moving forward, you do become pregnant with Emma. You have a successful pregnancy. It is during a pandemic. <laughs> How was the pregnancy for you? How were you able to continue your clinical practice in the forms that it took mm-hmm. during during your pregnancy?
2: Yeah. So pretty early on, um, I decided that I wanted to limit my exposure to COVID as much as possible. Obviously. Of um, so at first that, I mean, it helped my clinic basically shut down pretty much right away when things got bad and we all went to telehealth <clears throat> for a while I was um, going and doing the high risk OB clinic, um, but that felt pretty unsafe pretty quickly because uh, it's kind of a small space and it was in the hospital and things like that yeah. um, and I was still taking some OB calls and kind of the conversation happened with the residency director, and the medical director of how much do you really feel comfortable with? We want to really support you in this. And it was a really tough decision, but I made the decision to pull back completely from in-person care and everyone was so supportive. Like we have such an amazing obstetric call group and you know, having to tell them pretty early on that I was pregnant when I wasn't planning on telling people. Everyone just jumped in. They covered all of my shifts. They covered all of my rounding. They just moved everything around to allow me to be able to be home and be comfortable. Um, <clears throat> so I then was doing telehealth for home from home full time from about 12 weeks pregnant to about 24 weeks and then I decided I was gonna go crazy if I kept doing that (laughs) I was like this is affecting my mental health like it got to the point where like I would call patients and then I would cry in between each and every patient call because it was just so emotionally draining because you don't get that reward from doing the telehealth the same way. And it's just not what we do in family medicine, like so much of family medicine is the relationship and physical contact. And I didn't realize how much I would miss that. So around 22 to 24 weeks, I was really struggling with that. And cases were lower in the summer. So I kind of made the decision that at that point, the benefits to my mental health outweighed the risks of COVID. And it's weird to think about Oh, I've reached viability. So if something were to happen, and I were to catch COVID, and I were to have to have some crazy preterm delivery, because I had PROM or whatever, at least my baby's viable. Like, (laughs) it's such a weird thing to think, but it it was absolutely part of my thought process.
1: I remember I remember like the day that I turned viable with my first pregnancy and thinking like I've reached a milestone like yeah. one way or another I might actually have a baby because I remember exactly. being kind of similar to how you described with your very first pregnancy being kind of in denial the whole first basically the whole first 24 weeks like I'm pregnant at the moment we don't mm-hmm. know maybe we'll end up with a baby in nine months maybe we won't yeah and we're just not going to get our hopes up yeah. and then that day I turned 24 weeks and I was like I think I might actually have have a baby
2: right and being like oh wow that's that's a big deal I think like when we know these things in medicine there's like definitely milestones in the pregnancy and like the more you know there's always kind of like that milestone of like, I need to have a healthy baby oh, yeah. to really feel good about it. Like if you've ever seen bad outcomes, then those stick with you, like it yeah. fetal demise and, and you never really shake that. So there was never a point in the pregnancy when I felt like in the clear yeah. because I knew too much, but yeah, viability is definitely an, an interesting milestone because obviously I don't want to have a baby at 24 weeks, no, but <laughs> they would most likely live. Yeah. It's just a weird thing to think about, but you know, once I reached that point I was like I need to get out of the house and I need to do some things and so I I decided to go back and do um well child tracks at one of one of the clinics was doing all of the well child tracks and so I felt like this was a semi-safe thing to do and I could, you know, see healthy kids. It was actually really fun to just do well child checks for like a full day a week. <laughs>
0: so I'm just, just seeing Alice's eyes go, oh yes
1: please. <laughs> like <Those> my, so- <laughs> one of my I... dream jobs, well child I know. all day every day. <laughs> I know. If I
2: could just have a job where I do well child checks and prenatal care, I'd be good. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> oh, so that was fun. And then I started to take some OB call again then, but we, stop taking call in our group once you hit 36 weeks. So there was just this very narrow window of time where I took some OB call. I think I did like one C-section in an entire year because of this. Wow! So it was weird to come back full time. And I
1: was like, do I still know how to do a C-section? Okay, I think I do. (laughs) (laughs) So during that very short window where you were taking OB call while you were pregnant, how was it were you having, you know... GERD, trouble sleeping, nausea, (laughs) any of those, like, typical... Like, pregnancy oh, yeah. is not always comfortable symptoms. Yeah. I mean, I was having, like, the typical
2: musculoskeletal things and yeah. back pain. The rib pain was something I really didn't anticipate. But, like, pain hurts. basically from, like, 16 weeks until delivery, I just, my ribs were constantly in pain. And you can't get comfortable when you're sleeping. And then try to add that to, like, a twin bed and a call room. Yeah. And I would just, I would have, like, this arrangement of all the pillows I could find, <laughs> just make a little cocoon for myself yeah. in the call room um, and managed to get some sleep. But it definitely, you know, in our call system, too, we a lot of us typically have like clinic the day after you take call. And that became incredibly harder just because of how fatigued I got by the third trimester and then add a bad night's sleep. And I was yeah. not very functional. <laughs> Oh, you poor thing. (laughs) I was quite relieved when I got to the point where they wouldn't let me take call anymore, to be honest. Totally fair. Yeah.
1: And then how was that end of your third trimester? What kind of clinical work were you doing at that point? Once I, um,
2: I think got to about 36 weeks, I went back to primarily telehealth. And I was doing actually a couple of days in my regular clinic, we had reopened by then and we're doing a couple of days here and there. And then at 39 weeks, they basically just had me doing like telehealth acutes until I went into labor and I was scheduled for my elective induction as a up, just like I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, you know, the morning of my induction, I called and they had room for me on labor and delivery at the hospital I was going to. So I sent a text message to everyone saying, don't open my template for today. I'm going to go have a baby.
1: (laughs) Perfect. And what, um, what made you decide to do an elective induction or just because you know the data and you know, it's fine. Yes. I'm a
2: big proponent of the ARRIVE trial. (laughs) And if you think about like the type of you know, people in the trial—it's young, healthy primips. I'm like the exact demographic that was, you know, in the trial and shown to have good outcomes. And it was something that I wanted basically from the beginning of my pregnancy, and had been talking with my OB about it, like from my first prenatal appointment. Say, <laughs> so, do so they funny. allow this for primips at this hospital? And they did, so I was really excited about that. Um, so I just, for me, it was one. I I feel like the medical outcomes were better, and I liked knowing that and that I was reducing my risk of things like a C-section and preeclampsia. Um, but more so for me at that point, like it was really nice to know what was gonna happen. I was finding control like, of the
0: situation.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I was finding that while I wanted to go into labor and after I was doing all these things and try to go into labor at 37 weeks, I was getting anxious about going into labor on my own and being like, what is that actually going to be like? Is that really what I want? So when it wasn't happening, I was really relieved to have made it to the induction date <laughs> because then I knew what to expect completely. Basically.
1: <laughs> That's so funny. Cause I feel like, I mean, you know, different people are so different and yeah. I remember being, terrified of an induction and like what if I don't go into spontaneous labor by 41 weeks they're gonna make me have an induction and I hate Pitocin and it's gonna hurt and I'm gonna be stuck in a hospital and I won't be able to be in my own home and eat my own yogurt and I just like (laughs) wanted to like avoid an induction so badly that I like I mean I ended up going into labor before my due date with both kids spontaneously and it was fine but I just like had this and I do inductions all the time, like as mm-hmm. a resident, and it's something that I'm very comfortable with and I know it's going to happen. And yet somehow in my brain, like for me, myself, I was terrified of the idea of an induction. and I don't know why. It was completely irrational. Yeah. Well,
0: you, I, I do remember the big part of it was just you really just wanted to have as much time at home as possible. Yes, like you didn't want to be hanging out in the hospital any more than you needed to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. part of it was I was also having the babies with, in a hospital where it wasn't the hospital that I worked at. And mm-hmm. just wasn't a, it's like not a space that I'm as comfortable. And I was thinking some, like if I had ended up having my deliveries where i worked i probably wouldn't have had quite that level of fear of induction because i would have been in a comfortable space where you know the people where you know the people and you know where you are and you know where the graham crackers are going totally totally (laughs) and i also knew that like once i was on the hospital people would control what i ate (laughs) yes i don't want anyone controlling what i eat
0: i remember very much being uh Told to uh, go and find the snack cupboard at various times. Yeah. And I Alice... like instructed
1: Alex because then we like stayed for t- for like a week after because our baby wasn't special, and so we mm-hmm. like hunted up every single <laughs> snack cupboard <laughs> where all the good snacks were. By and family, we I, it's, a,
0: it's a real pleasure because I I have to go in and out hospital for various reasons every now and then. But one of the first things Alice will do is we're walking through and she's very very good at <laughs> right. spying That's it, clocking it. Kitchen. That's where it is.
2: <laughs> That's where we're going. Right, finding out which cafeterias open when and things
0: like that. but the but, but more annoying thing is like one of the times I was in for a week and I wasn't I wasn't allowed to eat but Alice oh found goodness. the snack cupboard oh gosh, and was like well I'm going to eat I found <laughs> the snack I, I found where all the crackers are I was <laughs> That's
2: so rude. Sorry, I try to be supportive but when
1: it comes to fasting I am not always
2: supportive I apologize I know it's so true though thinking about I was anxious about not being able to eat I think that was about my induction that I was most nervous about I've always said Like, if anyone ever makes me NPO, like bless their heart, like "Mm, good luck. (laughs) And it was funny because I I probably managed most of my own induction (laughs) 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 and I wanted next. And so many decision points I personally made around, well, if I hold off on this, then maybe I can eat again before then we start (laughs) potosing these different things. Once I got there and realized when I was allowed to eat in response to what induction methods, I kind
1: of was able to That's plan my so induction perfect. around food. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Knowing your priorities, exactly. having a healthy baby <laughs> and eating while I do
2: it. Because I was there for like 36 hours for induction. Yeah. Like if I had just been on pit, not been able to eat that whole time, I would have been a miserable human. And you had been really hungry
1: back. and have had no energy to push out a baby. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I'm... I'm glad I managed my induction the way I did. <laughs> so how did managing your induction go while you were the one having the baby? I've never imagined that. I
2: mean, if anyone knows me, they shouldn't be surprised.
1: If yeah. <laughs> knows
2: my personality, my husband was joking while he's like, that went exactly how I expected you to make it happen. <laughs> and I think. I think by then my OB obviously knew my personality we'd been through a lot together and yeah. um, she she kind of knew that I was going to be like that and I wasn't unreasonable I just wanted to make sure that I was having an evidence-based induction and I wanted you know induction methods that I feel like we're gonna work um, so there was it went pretty well there was only like a certain point where it got a little bit dicey because so I started with some side attacks and mesoprostol and then I was contracting too frequently to do the second dose and so they had to kind of like wait and see what was going to happen and then they checked me again and I was unchanged but still contracting too frequently so we agreed to do a cook um, balloon um, which was incredibly more uncomfortable than I thought that was like the most painful part of the induction interestingly Um, and in the morning when the cook was ready to come out the overnight doctor who I can't never mind I can't say her name but there's an irony there. <laughs> um, she came in and she said, okay, we're going to take the balloon out and um, maybe break your water. And in my mind, I was like, I would never break my water right now. Like I'm a primep who like, is barely ripened. Like, why would you break my water? And I had to say, like, I prefer that we don't break my water right now. And she kind of pushed back. And it was this weird, like, I had a very emotional response to it because it kind of felt like As a family doctor who does OB, I'm constantly on the defense about my decisions when I'm managing patients and sometimes have to, um, have difficult conversations with OB providers who might not agree with my plans. So it was a really weird moment to have that in regards to like my personal induction. Um, and I, I got like oddly emotional about it and I, I, you know, stood my ground and she didn't break my water and I was only two centimeters. It would have been a terrible idea. I feel like, yeah um but she got like defensive about it and then afterwards I felt really bad and I was asking the nurses like was I mean to her like I feel bad like was was that okay and the nurses were like no girl like you did fine (laughs) (laughs) do what you gotta do like we agree that wouldn't have been a great idea and that was the only time that it was kind of like oh, I don't know how I feel about this, Um, but I felt empowered enough, obviously, to ask for what I wanted. You. Um And then other than that, like, I was like, okay, I'd rather do another dose of misoprostol and then maybe do pit later and like AROM this time. And my OB was totally fine with that at that point and everything went well. And a huge baby and wanted an epidural like as soon as I possibly felt anything uncomfortable, and they kind of laughed at me, but whatever <laughs> <Outside>.
1: <laughs> to each their own yeah
0: <laughs> i 'm interested uh, slightly aside uh, from both of you uh, if uh, either of you have ever uh done a birth for a doctor and what it was like from that side of things, because obviously like having having a doctor like tell you what they want and specifically what they want it's got to be kind of strange from that point of view as well so i'm wondering if either of you had experienced that before
1: i don't think so i don't think so i've done for my i've been like kind of in a doula position for friends Mm -hmm. who weren't medical but had some medical training but i've never actually been like the doctor taking care of another doctor in labor
2: i've taken care of the spouses of either, there was like a med student when I was a fellow and his wife was having a C-section. I did her C-section. And then one of my husband's colleague's wife um, was having an induction that wasn't going well. And I did her C-section when I was a fellow. So I've been in that situation, but you know, a medical student and, you know, a non-obstetric provider yeah. is a different mindset, yeah. but it was still interesting to... To, it was kind of cool to participate in yeah. these things. I'm like, we still get like a Christmas card from like my husband's former colleague oh. whose baby I delivered. So that's oh. cool. That's
0: so <laughs> sweet. I'd definitely be interested to hear from like one, yeah, one doctor to another what the experience would. Was yeah, like. I'd
1: love to hear like what it was like. I'd love to like interview my OB pairs. Right. Like the yeah. midwives who took care of me. Like what was that like while I was like shouting at you in my like half delirious state what I wanted? Cause I know I did it. I don't really remember what I said. Right? I just remember like demanding various things while I was like, no, I'm dying. I'm a very like, <laughs> I'm such a baby in labor. I just did a lot of like fussing, but I didn't want an epidural because I'm like, I'm a very active person. Most people who know me know this. Like I typically knew. pirouette down the hallways on night float. Like this yeah. is just how I move. And so the idea of not being able to use my legs was like, not, that wasn't going to work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like well-being, like not wanting an epidural, was like very much like I'm in pain and I'm mad and I want you to all do what I say. <laughs> but they're like, what do you want? And you're like, I don't know. I, I don't
2: just know. need to listen and yell.
1: Exactly. So like,
0: okay. It definitely was fun seeing the work Alice and the uh, actually ready to give birth Alice colliding. Colliding.
2: It
1: was yeah. totally. like a big
2: crash. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like very the opposite of like the end of my labor because I had my epidural. I was super comfortable just lying there waiting to push. And my husband, (laughs) because he's also in medicine, he's been in other deliveries as a med student, but only ever as a med student. And so he was so surprised with like, one, how few people were in the room. <laughs> He's right. like, aren't there supposed to be like a lot more like students and nurses <laughs> and whatever? Cause it was just like me, the nurse and the doctor and him for a while. Um, and he was also like so shocked by, you know, in between pushes, like me and my OB are just like chatting it up about like totally random things. And he thought that was <laughs> so weird. <laughs> That's so funny. That sounds very That's different. Great. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah oh, very goodness.
1: different. So once Emma came out and now you have this beautiful, perfect baby, um, how was that transition to motherhood for you?
2: I knew that I, I knew that I didn't know how to actually be a mom. (laughs) (laughs) If that makes sense. Like I knew that my medical training had taught me things about babies but I knew that it didn't teach me how to take care of a baby. And so going into it, like my husband and I had talked a lot and we were both like, we're on the same page about knowing that we don't know things. So we'll figure things out as we go. So we tried to be pretty relaxed about it. I'm quite proud of myself for like being less OCD about certain things and kind of more relaxed about it than I thought I would be. But holy moly, is it harder than I thought. I knew, like, the big thing I, that was the, the first big moment of, like, holy crap, is this hard, was <laughs> cluster feeding. And I knew that I counsel moms, like, okay, you're going to the second night. It's going to be rough. But I had no idea, like, how rough. And I thought cluster feeding was just, like, a one-night deal. And I had no idea that that goes on for, like, six weeks. <laughs> um, So definitely, obviously harder than you know, anyone expects. But um, yeah, I don't I don't know how much my medical training prepared me for it. You know, you might say like, oh, I'm used to being up all night, but it's different when there's like no end in sight. Yeah,
1: definitely.
2: <laughs> um, and those baby blues are like, legit. <laughs> those like first couple of weeks, and there was, I was having so much anxiety about, what the nights were going to be like because there's no end in sight I thought like I was prepared because I take overnight call all the time but you know going into a night you don't know if it's going to be a good night or a bad night and I would just like hysterically sob in the shower from like 7 p.m to 8 p.m for like a week and then I was like I really hope this goes away and then it just like I stopped crying one day (laughs) but yeah
1: there's nothing really that can prepare you for it (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's probably the most important advice that we give to prospective parents is mm-hmm. is you can't be prepared. Yeah, like you can do as be much prepared to be or, unprepared. Yeah. Yes, you can do as and much really reading as read so. you want. You could
0: you have all your medical training. Yeah. Like you could do any amount yeah. of preparations, but it will not really tell you the real reality. Right of it yeah
2: and you don't know what the temperament of your baby is going to be like and to be honest we have a really easy baby like I know how hard it can be and she's such a good baby and always has been that I literally can't imagine having a harder baby because <laughs> it was still yeah. so hard <laughs> and we read all the books and I made you know I made us do like newborn classes and I, we took an online breastfeeding class all this stuff that like was mostly stuff I already knew but it was helpful to have my husband be on the same page um but yeah you just don't know until you do it
0: <laughs> See, you mentioned at the beginning like you're billing in this little section um that you are pretty proud about how relaxed you were on some things um did you have to actively like try and switch off your doctor brain when you when you became a mum or did it sort of ha- happen automatically or how did you approach that without like, i know like if I was in that position, I would be panicking at every little cough or spot or whatever, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think, I think in general, as a, as a physician, I'm a bit more relaxed. Interestingly, like I, you know, I'm not an alarmist. I, I usually like, if someone comes with a complaint, I say, well, let's see what happens. It doesn't seem like anything dangerous. Let's kind of wait and see. I'm not like a big tester, referrer, things like that. So I think, I was able to utilize those skills to say, Oh, she's like really spitty right now. Like, but I don't think she's going to choke on her spit. Like, <laughs> but every sound that she makes in the middle of the night, you don't know. So I think it was some level of comfort with knowing normal baby things and saying, I'm pretty sure that's normal, but like, let's just keep an eye on it. Um, helped. And like around like breastfeeding and being like, okay, like, I don't know how much she's getting. I'm pretty sure it's normal for my milk to not be in yet. She seems to be eating well. I think she's making enough wet diapers. Like, let me just trust the process and trust my body. Um, and it worked out. So I think I knew enough to feel reassured with what I was doing in order to stay relaxed, which I think made a difference.
0: Yeah, it seems like that your your, your way of practice helped mm-hmm. you in that for sure. Yeah.
2: yeah. But interesting, like as a person, I'm usually much more of a control freak. <laughs> so it <Yeah>. was, <laughs> I guess it was, it was surprising to me that I felt like I
1: could be a little,
2: go with the flow a little bit more.
1: It's funny, it sounds almost like for many people, they have to turn off their doctor selves to be able to be a cool, calm, and collected parent, and for you, it kind of was the opposite. You had to turn on your doctor self yeah, a little bit. channel your doctor persona, or not persona, but like the way that you are in clinic with your patients, channel that behavior as a mom, and it kind of brought out the cool, calm, and collected jest. Yeah,
2: I didn't <laughs> expect it to work that way, but it worked out pretty well. I mean, I'm still pretty like control freak and crazy about things, but like, don't get <laughs> me wrong. Like we still use an app and we track every time she eats and sleeps and like oh my all goodness, stuff. Good for but... you.
1: <laughs> I definitely did not do that. I was too tired. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, we were
0: very on it when when uh, both kids were growing inside because we had those apps that tell you like what vegetable or fruit yeah. are like. I love it. There was
1: also <laughs> no baby crying and yeah. like, Yeah. <laughs>
0: There was, there was just a Alice and occasionally a, a dad crying. Yeah.
1: But yeah, yeah, like me, no, like complaining, like yeah. I can't sleep, my back hurts. <laughs> yep,
2: I know those apps were so funny. Every every week we'd get a new vegetable, and we'd both be like really like
0: stick a celery really does that yeah
2: and the app seemed to alternate between like your baby is equal in volume to this vegetable versus your baby is equal in length to this vegetable I was like they have to pick like a measure like you can't just keep going back and forth
0: I was not happy with their (laughs) measurement measurement cases on this because the vegetables and fruit made no sense half the time
2: right and (laughs) And I'm like I don't know what a rutabaga really is like (laughs) can you you pick a vegetable that's a little more mainstream
0: <laughs> so i'm I'm interested so you were talking about uh during pregnancy you kind of established some kind of leave it wasn't leave necessarily because you're working from home mm-hmm. um, and it was more covid orientated than it was pregnancy, mm-hmm. pregnancy yeah. per se but um i want wanted to sort of touch on what you managed to get for uh, uh for parental leave because this is a big struggle in this world
2: yeah. uh yeah um <laughs> so I was kind of like surprised and when I planned it, I didn't realize how complicated it was. Um, I kind of thought it was like, okay, we get 12 weeks and that's covered by FMLA and I'll be able to use my you know PTO that I've accumulated and I have some short-term disability. So when I started the job, in HR is like, we don't really have a maternity leave policy. If you think you might have a baby, you should sign up for short-term disability. So I did. I didn't realize that that covered four weeks of the 12 at I think 60% of my income.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And then there's like all these different things about in Massachusetts, you have to use this much leave during these weeks. And this, you can only use this leave during these weeks. It was super, super complicated. Um, So I took 12 weeks um, and I basically worked it out so that I was getting partially paid. I think average like 50 to 60% of my salary across those 12 weeks um, on average. And I wanted to do it in a way where I still had some time off left over at the end of it. I didn't want to use all of my time off and then have to like reaccumulate everything and never know when I could take a vacation again. (laughs) So that was important to me. Um, But I didn't really think about taking more than 12 weeks off, which is interesting. And I've like listened to your podcast and you've talked about this with other people. And I, I don't know, like I always just assumed that this is what you do. You take 12 weeks and that's it. And I never really thought about out past FMLA, like just using more PTO or going back part-time. It literally never crossed my mind. <laughs>
1: so funny. I feel like so many of us, you have your preconceived notion and people who take just like six weeks and they're like, oh, that's just what I did. And then I went back and it never created right. do different. Or people who like take six months and they're like, that's what I thought you always did. And exactly. we all, I think you get these, like somewhere in society, you like pick up this idea of what is a maternity leave? And then you just... Roll with that subconsciously Uh in a way because we don't talk about it much among our friends and family, among our colleagues. It's not just a common, you know, dinner table conversation that we don't have any like... Oh, there are choices and there are different ways you could gotcha. set this up. And like, yeah. you can use unpaid leave. You could use your PTO time. You can use FMLA, especially now in Massachusetts. We have the new law mm. where you can have more monetary support from the state during FMLA. Like there's just so many possibilities, so many different right. kind of recipes, if you will, to make it work that it it would be really helpful to have like a recipe book. <laughs>
2: right? (laughs) It's really complicated. And the Massachusetts leave is interesting because I didn't know much about it until I was already on leave. I started to look into it more because it kicked in. I had my baby in October and it's the new program started in January. And so Uh. I was coming back to work in January. So I assumed, oh, that sucks. That's just really bad timing. I don't get to take advantage of that. But looking more into the wording of the law, I think I could theoretically legally still ask for 12 more weeks in up until her first year of birth. Wow. So I could have <laughs> taken more time, yeah. but I had no idea. And I could maybe still use that time. But there's also like, not that I felt pressured by work to come back. I think I just assumed that they needed me yeah. in a weird way. Like, especially with my call group and being OB call, I felt yeah. like they had covered for me so much already through the time that I was working from home. And I took so little call over the last year that I almost felt like I owed it to them, despite yeah. them telling me multiple times that I don't owe them anything. And that they would have done this for anyone. And, you know, I wouldn't do that for them. And we were such a good call group. I love them so much, but
0: well, that shows how much of a lovely person you are, but also <laughs> it shows there is that weird ingrained culture in this mm-hmm. thing that, uh, in this country that, kids set you back and you need to like pay back yeah. what people helped you with when actually really in other societies that have parental leave as standard that's not a thing and mm-hmm. we don't have that
1: the and I think is also, so yeah. yeah in medicine specifically we have this very strong like if you take support you need to give support and like mm-hmm. you should never I don't know it's almost like frowned upon to to ask for too much as right. though parental leave is asking for something but really like you are contributing to society you are contributing a baby to society <laughs> but like it feels so different and so asking for coverage and time and everything mm-hmm. feels really hard in a way mm-hmm. that I don't know I wish it didn't yeah is,
0: totally is that something that sort of was just ingrained in your training full stop just because you have this kind of like strange hierarchical thing or I don't
1: it's like conscious exactly no. like
2: i yeah. i can't say like oh yeah so and so told me throughout my training or i was told this throughout my training yeah. it's just the culture of it um, that we all train in that you mm. see other people doing it and you see the response when people take time or or not take time and and it yeah. just becomes normal to not take sick days and not take time off when you need time off and mm we don't even think about it I think it's totally subconscious
0: which which seems to me crazy in the medic- medicine world <laughs> because you preached Taking self care to your patients. Oh yeah, it's a sensible thing. But (laughs) the system's terrible at it, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, we are terrible at practicing what we preach. Just in general,
1: (laughs) I always tell my patients, "Do what I say and not what I do." I tell this to Alex too. I'm like, "Yeah, eat healthy, exercise." While I'm like eating a cookie and sitting on my bum. Right. (laughs) Exactly. You're like, for me
2: right now, this is what my self care needs. I need a cookie and sitting on my bum. Uh,
3: Exactly. (laughs) Oh my goodness!
1: Um, So then, after the twelve weeks, and I know this is pretty recent um, Mm -hmm. because I was actually rounding on you with uh, rounding (laughs) with you on ov at the time. How was that transition back to a full time workload with a three month old?
2: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it was easier emotionally than I thought it was going to be. Um, I was really anxious about it leading up to it Um, more so about like deciding on childcare during a pandemic was extra stressful and trying to figure out what made the most sense. And so we, um, decided to interview some nannies and feel like, you know, if we found a nanny that we felt like was taking COVID seriously, then that would be our preference. If not, there's this other daycare that seems to be like handling things pretty well. So we got really lucky. We found a nanny that we absolutely love. And I feel so lucky to have her. And she somehow has like the most flexible schedule that I, uh, it's a miracle. Like, I don't even know how we found her. She <laughs> are so freaking lucky. Um, okay. So I was very anxious leading up to coming back to work about that. But then once that kind of fell into place and, you know, she had like a practice day with us where I practiced pumping and she practiced giving the baby milk all day through the bottle. I felt a little bit better, but still that like Sunday night before I went back, I just couldn't stop crying. <laughs> I was like, I don't even know what I'm sad about. I think it was just like a weird milestone. Yeah. Um, and, but then once I got to work, I was totally fine. but it's definitely an adjustment. I think in primary care, we're so, there's so much work to be done in primary care to begin with. So many of us bring so much work home or we stay late to finish our charting and manage our inbox. And there's so much extra stuff to be done that, you know, we're still as a family figuring out how to distribute that time in a way that makes sense. And both me and my husband try to just kind of leave work as soon as we can to come home and spend any amount of time with the baby before she has to go to sleep and then we both stay up later doing things so it's not what I pictured but we're making it work and hopefully over time that our healthcare system and our clinics and whatever will make it easier to not have to do so much work at home but that's a whole nother podcast yeah. <laughs> I,
0: I am interested like because you are both in the medical field how you make that work
1: yeah, how do you schedule your childcare and schedule your time to get your your charting and your notes and everything done? And the Where? time for
0: your partner being infectious disease, I guess, is not the yeah, quietest of sure years, this right? a <laughs>
1: busy year for
2: him. He had some busy, busy days, yes. yeah. <laughs> and he's a workaholic, too. So even before the pandemic, before having a baby, it was always a struggle to get him to come home at a ritual time. <laughs> but now, miraculously, he wants to see the baby, so he comes home at a regular time most of the time. <laughs> yeah. But we basically have made it work so that um, basically he kind of goes into work as early as he needs to or wants to. And then because my, I'm kind of locked into my clinic schedule, I can't, you know, leave until I'm done seeing patients. He has a bit more flexibility of when he can leave most of the time. So the idea being that he leaves work early enough to relieve the nanny until I come home. It usually works out enough that we get home around the same time. Um, and then do work later <laughs> yeah.
1: so and how does the like putting the baby down and doing work later go like I remember trying to put the baby down and it would take like two hours and by the time the baby was asleep I was also basically asleep like I said we're
2: really lucky and she's a really good baby um, um and she goes to sleep really well so I think if it weren't for that I would be completely dysfunctional and miserable (laughs) Um, so you know we figured out like we can come home and hang out with her a little bit we kind of tag team bedtime where he'll start bedtime routine we'll all start making dinner and then we kind of like he'll be like, he'll send me a text and be like, okay, reading now. And then I'll be like, okay, let me wrap up whatever step of dinner I'm on, go upstairs, nurse her to sleep. And I'll come up, I give him sign out basically on where I am in the, <laughs> the dinner process. So he can take over when he goes downstairs.
1: <laughs> That's such a doctor. Man. I know. Like, we're to give doctor- you <laughs> sign out on dinner while you give me sign out on bedtime. It's like <laughs> literally what we
2: do every night is a warm hand up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So basically the advice is uh, you both as doctors continue to be doctors at home and they Turns make out, well, yeah, that's yeah. what
1: works
2: for us.
3: Turns out
1: it's a good solid communication method that everybody's yeah.
2: comfortable with. Exactly. So then by the time I'm done nursing her and she's asleep, I come downstairs, dinner's mostly made. We sit down in front of the TV like normal millennial adults who watch eat dinner. And and then after we've watched our so- show simultaneously. He usually goes and does dishes for a while and then we'll go up to the office and I usually grab my laptop and continue to watch random shows that bring me joy while I work on Good things until bedtime. <laughs> That's so
0: funny. <laughs> Here's so an aside then, because I know you're both into shows then. What, what are the go-to make you happy shows at the moment?
2: Yeah. Oh, I'm a big, like bravo reality tv junkie um (laughs) so i've got like my go-to reality shows that i watch and you know i have my timeline for the week of like this airs this night so i can watch it this night i unfortunately still watch the bachelor but i think with all of the things going on culturally with the bachelor i'm going to step back from that um and be a better anti-racist because there's a lot more there's a whole podcast about that too if you're interested (laughs) Um, But, yeah, lots of Bravo reality shows, do some Netflixing, really liked Bridgerton. Um, I've been
0: told you should watch Bridgerton.
2: It's really interesting. It is,
1: Not suitable for children. Not at all suitable for children. (laughs) It is, I've heard it described as like the R rated Pride and Prejudice, which I thought was an interesting. It is similar, I feel like it's similar to a Jane Austen in the level Mm -hmm. of character development, Mm -hmm. especially with the focus on like the women's character and the women's sphere and how they can use that influence to change the larger sphere yeah i don't know i found it fascinating yeah and it was very visually
2: pleasing the colors and costumes and the storyline. the costumes are
1: great what i'm getting from this
0: is that you both need to start a uh, bridgerton podcast
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh no thank you (laughs) <laughs> another day
2: definitely don't have time for that but Not i'll watch so it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly But definitely- well, if you watch
0: it that's the time to do the podcast it's just, it's just a director's commentary style thing as it goes along you just oh, record yeah. yourself <laughs> commenting on it yeah
2: that's true that would oh, save yeah. some time i guess <laughs>
1: that's-
0: Anyway, what's this podcast? Uh, Dr. Mumba. Right, yeah,
1: sorry. Dr. Yeah. yeah, yeah. not Bergerton related. <laughs> so um as you were transitioning to back to work, how did your um how did pumping go? Were you able to find protected time to pump? Were you able to find a pump that works for you, milk storage system, all of that? Yeah.
2: It's also something that like I had no idea about before going into this. And you might remember that I was precepting you one day and be like, Alice, I have so many questions I need you to help me
1: with. <laughs> and you're like, okay, you need a haka, you need this. Is this you you yeah. <laughs> um, I so like I, preach haka to everybody I know.
2: It like <laughs> saved my life. <laughs> it's, I love the haka. But I I think I utilized the resources that I had. I talked to people who were doing this. I had sent an email to like several colleagues who I knew had pumped for a long time at work and kind of asked for their advice, which was really helpful. Um, I think having like the practice day with the nanny was really helpful for me to know just like troubleshooting of like, okay, connecting this to this first, and then like storing the bags here in the bag. And how long does my ice pack last versus this? Like I actually found some issues that I was able to troubleshoot before my first day back at work, which was helpful trying to figure out like when to ask for protected pumping time is really hard in a busy family medicine clinic. Um, you know, I know legally I'm allowed to ask for time, but it still feels weird to yeah. ask for this time to be blocked. But once I started, then I was just like, nope, this is a priority. I'm going to ask for whatever I need um, and felt really empowered to do so. Um, also, based on some of the Facebook groups that you and I are probably both in. <laughs> it's very empowering. Is this another
0: time for me. Dr. Milk to get a mention? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Oh my goodness.
1: We Shout are not Dr. sponsored Milk. by Dr. Milk, but we
2: love it very much. <laughs> very much overlap in the topics. So, yes. um, so yeah, I think I got into the habit of doing it. It helps that we still have some telehealth visits scheduled, even when I'm in person. So if I fall behind, I'll like save my telehealth for when I'm pumping and I'll do telehealth while I pump. Um, and then I'm still working from home a couple of days a week. And on those days I'll directly nurse and the nanny will bring the baby to me. It's a little bit harder scheduling wise, cause she nurses on demand when I'm here. Yeah. And so, I'll fall like an hour behind in telehealth and then catch up. And then it, yeah, it kind <laughs> it's kind of challenge. It's almost more challenging because I also can't multitask when I'm nursing. Like I can, when I'm pumping. So mm, during pump fair. breaks in clinic, I can multitask and manage my inbox or do telehealth. But when I'm nursing, I'm just nursing. I'm just
1: watching more patients get checked in as I'm not oh. calling them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that just sounds just well. Yeah. I wonder how, like, calling a patient while nursing. No, because then the baby's gonna cry and kick the phone. Exactly, that would not go well. Probably. And she's like really distracted nursing right now. She's in that like four to five month. Oh, like, yeah. I hear everything and
2: see everything, and if there's a sound, I have to check it out. So if I yeah. like, I can't like talk while I'm nursing. I have to like stay oh, really no. quiet. <laughs> She'll just pop off. And I remember,
0: noise. I remember that was definitely the age with both of them where like biting the nipple became um, much more of a thing because they're so interested in the world.
1: They're just like really excited and they would get distracted. So they would like
3: turn their head
1: yes stop yeah. <laughs> exactly
2: she'll like Thank turn God. 90 degrees all of a sudden it's like what are there's milk spraying everywhere <laughs> 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 on my laptop i don't think i've sprayed milk on my laptop oh. yet but i'm sure
1: it's around to happen <laughs> i was gonna say i
0: like the word yet i was yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
1: i know it'll happen eventually <laughs> oh my goodness and um do you feel like you ever did get pushback either like verbal or nonverbal from colleagues or from schedulers or anybody about like having pumping time and making sure that you could take that?
2: No, everyone was pretty supportive. Um, I basically said, this is what I think I need. And I actually just had a meeting yesterday with our site operations person where we were going over some scheduling stuff. And now that I've been doing it for a couple of months, we're moving some of my pumping breaks and we're actually adding okay. some pumping time on my telehealth from home days. So awesome. uh, they've been really supportive and I think it helps that she is a mom <laughs> and has yeah. two kids of her own who are school-aged and um, women in leadership help. Like this was definitely, it, like, definitely through this whole, Whole process in the pandemic, having women in leadership be the ones that I was going to saying, Hey, I'm pregnant, didn't plan to tell you, I've had two miscarriages, really don't want to mess this up. And they're like, I got you, like, I get this. And
1: some of them had had high risk pregnancies. And so I was going to say, <laughs> Women in leadership, I think it's women been a lifesaver leadership. for us in residency, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. especially moms in leadership who you can um, be like, This is what I'm going through, and they get it. And they're yeah. like, Okay, it's going to be all right. Yep, yeah, I think exactly makes a huge difference. Like I can't imagine if
2: I had to tell like some random white dude yeah. <laughs> about, my, about my pregnancy yeah, early in the pandemic and ask for accommodations, you know, like it just yeah. might not have done it
1: even. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. On that, <laughs> note, that, that feels deep. Yeah. Um, on that note, do you feel like, and I know it hasn't been very long, but Each of these steps for you, the miscarriages, the pregnancies, now coming back, the pregnancies, all three, um, then the coming back to work as a mom, do you feel like each of them has altered the way you practice medicine? I know you said that you feel like the first miscarriage really altered the way that you Mm. um, counsel about miscarriage management specifically but do you feel like it's affected any of the other things you do in like prenatal care while child checks like all of that stuff totally
2: (laughs) more so i mean the having the miscarriages absolutely affected how i counsel and manage people's miscarriages and i'm like i don't like to make women wait for their hcg results like i flag myself to follow up on it and call them right away because that waiting time is awful. And so I just managed that totally differently. But now having been through a pregnancy, received prenatal care, had a delivery, and now having a baby where I'm learning as I go how to actually take care of baby and all the things they don't teach us in residency has (laughs) completely changed how I do well child checks. (laughs) Because I feel like I I have so much more clout when I talk about sleep and swaddling and nursing and all of these different things. And I'm I'm so much more likely to counsel during prenatal visits about breastfeeding when I really wasn't doing it that much before, but I've made it more of a priority Um, and giving people resources that I've found helpful for various things. I, I mean, the amount of stuff that I Google is ridiculous because I have like a medical degree but I still google a lot and the I found you sources. can
0: google it and understand what the results are
2: yeah, exactly <laughs> google it and make sure it's a reputable source yeah, yeah exactly and so being able to share those things that I found with patients and just being able to talk about things in a such a more informed way it's made my well child checks a lot more fun too so I feel like I can empathize with them like there's a couple of patients who had babies and what, like we were pregnant at the same time and we had babies around the same time as each other. now I'm seeing their babies. And I'm like, oh, are they doing this yet? My baby's doing this yet. And I show them pictures and it's just this really cool special bond. Uh, <laughs> so it's been really you, fun.
0: It seems like this what a lot of primary medicine doctors go in for is building that relationship yeah. and really enjoying yeah. that relationship with patients yeah. so this really gives you that extra level of exactly communication. i love it's the special.
1: patients that i've had since my intern year i don't have that many because your panel is pretty small as an intern mm-hmm. but those few patients that i had well i was like a brand new pregnant intern who are still my patients and they still every single time they see they me ask, ask for a can. picture yes. and they're like oh my goodness he's so big and they yeah. remember when i was very pregnant and then i came back with this like infant and they've they've seen him grow just like i've yeah. seen them and it's amazing i love that relationship that you build
2: yeah and even patients that I didn't even see while I was pregnant. Like I talked to them now and they're like, you were gone. You had a baby. I heard you had a baby. And I'm like, how do they know all these things? <laughs> Whatever. But they always ask me they're like, how was your delivery? How's the baby doing? And I like, the community great it's amazing. yeah, I'm just like, I don't know how word got out, but okay.
0: <laughs> so you say like word get out. And so that it kind of means you don't really have to bring it up, but I, there's yeah. obviously going to be times there is that, and you want to be able to have that, that relationship wow. and that, mm-hmm that understanding with your patients how do you go about like bringing that up in conversation in a way that's not like yeah I have a baby too or you know (laughs) like I mean I'm intrigued by that because and everyone does it differently so
2: yeah well it's interesting because before I had a baby as a woman in medicine patients often ask do you have kids and I get that question so often that now it comes up, and I can be like, "Yeah, actually, I do." <laughs> <laughs> I can finally say yes to this question. Um, but also now, like I've been in my job for a couple of years, and so many of my patients know me and knew that this was happening. Yeah. But even if it's you know patients who I didn't know, they're asking me things about their baby and. I I just say like oh you know I also have a baby around the same age and when she was this age this is what helped me yeah um I think there's a way to to do it that doesn't come off as like I know yeah. better
0: <laughs> in a conversational manner rather than an interview style yeah, yeah, yeah
1: exactly <laughs> I think really, I'm like with my kiddos like I find that this helps get them to eat more vegetables like these are some things I've tried I don't yeah. know maybe it would work yeah exactly like it was
2: interesting last week I was precepting and one. One of the um, second year residents was seeing this nine week old baby who showed up with his dad for this visit and this dad is this primary caretaker of this nine week old because we don't have maternity leave in America and mom had already had to go back to work Yeah, and this dad just had no idea what he was doing Aww. he was really overwhelmed and this baby's like kind of colicky and it was the end of the day and I was like I really want to go home but I was like let me go in and talk to this dad and I ended up staying in there for like probably over a half an hour it just doing like really basic like this is how you care a baby let me show you pictures of the swaddle that we use <laughs> and, and he was um, so appreciative and it was so rewarding to be able to do that and be able to do it in a way that felt like we were on the same level yeah. and not like I was just preaching to him good for really you cool. <laughs>
1: that is so it's so important and so wonderful to be able to take that time to really connect with an individual parent an individual patient family mm-hmm. to to build those those communities and that knowledge base that we need yeah yeah it was really cool <laughs> mm-hmm. um so we do have if it's okay with you a couple of wrap up questions okay. um the first is what is one piece of advice that you would give to young women who are thinking of pursuing a career in medicine who also want to pursue motherhood?
2: Hmm. I think kind of going back to what we were talking about and talking about the beginning of my journey and timing and things like that I think a piece of advice that's helpful is just knowing that you can have a baby and be a doctor in any order and time that you want that works for you there is no right time (laughs) and that you'll hear people say that over and over again but just because you're in medicine doesn't mean you have to alter your timing if that's what works for you. For me personally, I could not have imagined having a baby in residency or fellowship, but it's worked beautifully for other people, obviously, as you can speak <laughs> to. Um, so just knowing that, you know, do what's right for you and try not to care about the pressures that we place on ourselves internally, because I think you'll be surprised in how much external support there is when we kind of let ourselves just go with what do what we want
1: (laughs) so wonderful all right and then what is one thing that listeners can do once a day to make themselves one percent stronger be it physically emotionally academically or socially oh one thing
2: that's a tough one um Bridgerton (laughs) watching Bridgerton maybe I would, as I'm looking out the window and it's a beautiful sunny day, I would say go outside. (laughs) I think it's under undervalued to at least get outside and get some sunshine. And I know in the midst of the pandemic, when I was stuck in the house doing telehealth, my, you know, saving grace was when it was warm enough to do some telehealth outdoors. (laughs) So
1: that definitely brought me strength. (laughs) It's so important. And I think especially in this whole year of isolation that we've mm-hmm. been coming through, being able to just go and get some sunshine yeah. for your for your vitamin D, for your bones <laughs> at the very least, but also yeah. like for your mental health and yeah. for your sleep cycle and everything oh, else.
0: Yeah, this this past year we've been either very stuck in this house or you're stuck house Hospital, hospital, house, house hospital, hospital, and nowhere else, yeah. literally yeah. nowhere else. Exactly.
2: Yeah. You've got to make that time to, to get outside and do things outside. Yeah.
0: All right. <laughs> we have one more wrap-up question, which is a brand new one, which has never been asked on the podcast before. Oh, gosh. Um, and Alice has <laughs> even given me the eyes yes. of, like, what in goodness me <laughs> <What? laughs> about to ask. <laughs> So earlier on in the podcast interview with you, um, there was a moment that got me excited, um, and I want to ask this question. You have a dog. <laughs> i heard her barking yes Uh, what sort what sort of dog do you have Uh, i just i just like pets
2: that is something i could definitely answer (laughs) (laughs) the easiest question you've asked me all day um we have a dog and two cats um so our dog is shelly she's a black lab mix we adopted her during our third year of residency when we were in chicago which similarly no good time to adopt a dog so just do it (laughs) just
1: if you want a dog just get a dog we have a Uh, lot of pet parents in our residency and they love to show off their ducky photos i think it's great (laughs) yep and your residency
2: has also supplied me with some excellent dog sitters (laughs) (laughs) sitters. (laughs) but yeah shelly's a great dog she's been pretty good with the baby so far she's a very rambunctious lab so we were very nervous but she's She's been appropriately responsive when we tell her to like calm down and back off. So we've been pleasantly surprised.
0: (laughs) And and in the other world with the cats, how, how are they doing?
2: they are coming around so it was interesting we have two cats one is like very needy of our attention the other one's more passive aggressive like a cat (laughs) but when he wants your attention he's like no i need your attention now (laughs) when i came home from the hospital he would not let me touch him for like two weeks like he wanted (laughs) nothing to do with me and he's usually like you can pick him up and carry him around and things like that yeah um, so it took like a long time for him to come around to even just being around me. And now he's starting to kind of come around when the baby's around months later. I don't think he and the baby are ever going to be like good friends, but <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> the other cat recently let Emma pet her and they had a cute Aww. little moment. So I'm thinking maybe they'll have special bonds. We'll see.
1: <laughs> Our youngest likes to sit on the cat and use her <laughs> as a pillow. So they definitely have a special bond. We'll, and the, we'll the cat cool with good. That? So this is a cat who's not usually a very cuddly cat. She is um, somewhat violent occasionally. You know, she'll she'll make her opinions known. But she doesn't. She has scratched him once, I think, when he pulled her tail. But yeah. most of the time, she doesn't. She no, is amazingly is. lenient with the kids in a way she is not with us. Yeah, <laughs>
0: I'm not sure she's enjoying it. But,
1: <laughs> but she he's tolerates tolerated.
2: it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have oh. fun. Well,
0: I enjoyed that of that extra that question. Extra that
1: yeah. I can send pics for follow-up. Oh. Yes, definitely. We can post them in the show notes for listeners yeah, to the dog tricks. <laughs> Cat and baby and dog. Exactly. Oh, well, thank you so much, Jess, for sharing your story with us and, and taking the time to chat with us. Thank you for thinking of me. This was so fun.
0: Thank you. Well,
1: have a wonderful day. Bye. 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 Thank you, Jess, so much for all of those wonderful words of wisdom. And we are really looking forward to all the photos of your beautiful baby with the kitties and the doggy, All the cuteness all in one.
0: I am very, very excited indeed. I need kind of like the cuteness to sort of like keep me going for these sort of like late night uh, recording sessions.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Getting through that tail end, I feel like we're crawling to the end of this pandemic and a little bit of cute is going to give us that extra juice we need to to make it through.
0: Talking of juice, I just I just reminded me, we've just had uh, Passover. We had our fir- uh, first Seder. First Seder? No, not, no. It's
1: not our first Seder. But our second now Zoom Seder and our kids basically never get juice, and they got to have grape juice. Um, we do not feed our children wine. Um, but they were so excited, and then after Seder, we so hyper. It was terrifying. Like <laughs> it was, terrifying it was the fact
0: that you can't quite tell the difference between the, them saying juice and Jews. Oh, yeah, so it sounded like good. they were just dancing around the uh, house going, I love Jews. I love Jews. <laughs>
1: Which is, you know, appropriate for Passover, but actually what they really like is grape juice.
0: (laughs) Anyway. Anyway,
1: on a more serious note, I really want to thank Jess for sharing with us her experiences of miscarriage and trouble, you know, achieving a healthy pregnancy and the journey she went through. I know that that is a really hard journey and such an important one to talk about because so many... Women in so many families really suffer in silence and if we can open up that conversation a bit hopefully we can help reduce some of that stigma and relieve some of that pain.
0: Well, and like she said, it's not an uncommon thing. No. And so it the more it's talked about the more people's mental health can be much healthier For knowing sure. they're not alone, so. Yeah. Yeah, thank you Jessica.
1: Yeah. So if you liked this episode, there's more where it came from. You can find us on your podcast apps, wherever you're listening to this right now, Dr. Mama Podcast. Reach out and tell us your comments, questions, and concerns. We are on all the socials at Dr. Mama Podcast and on email at Dr. Mama Podcast at gmail.com.
0: And uh, no one else has taken the offer up yet, but I'm going to continue to say it. Uh, you can send us a voice message <laughs> at the very catchy titled uh, anchor.fm forward slash Dr. Mama podcast.
1: Yes, go for it. If that is your thing. And if you send us a voice message that includes babies crying while puppies are barking and maybe a cat, I I will make sure that that gets into the episode. <laughs> Nothing else, I'm not going to promise. But that will get into the episode.
0: Well, happy April, everybody. And we'll see you next week for the next episode of the Dr. Mama podcast. Laters. Bye. The Dr. Mama podcast is presented by Alice Kaufman and produced, mixed and edited by Alex Cumming, who also provided the original music.